For a number of weeks, we've been studying the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, and we've, I guess we could say we've been focusing on a number of things. We've certainly talked about and seen from the text the importance of understanding very clearly what it means to be identified with God's people, to be the church. We've talked about the importance of the local church. We've talked about the importance of the people of God and life in the midst of the people of God. But really, there's one great gospel truth that we've seen as we've worked our way through this this book, selectively worked our way through this book, and it's this, that in the face of our unfaithfulness, God is a constantly faithful God to His people. That's really been what's repeatedly demonstrated in text after text after text. We've seen this chronic serial almost apparently unapologetic unfaithfulness of God's people of Israel. As they grumble against the Lord, as they rebel against Him and against their leadership, as they complain, as they doubt, as they worry, as they fear, as they long for Egypt and doubt God's good plan for them, and constantly, how do we see God respond? We see Him respond, yes, with discipline, with judgment to some degree in order to bring them to repentance and restore them. And then we come back the next Sunday and we see the same cycle again, don't we? But what we see here is that in spite of the faithlessness of God's people, God is faithful. God is a faithful God to his people. And we'll see that again this morning, though in a different way. So let's read our text and then pray, and then we'll look at, uh, at this passage, this 22nd chapter uh, of the book of Numbers. Now, this is a story that actually takes up three chapters. I'll make reference to the other two chapters in the course of the sermon. Uh, you might read them later, but uh, we'll read selectively from Numbers chapter 22. This is the Word of God. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And then let's begin with verse 22, verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. 
And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I've come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us your word, and so we have read it, and we want to take it seriously, to consider it, to listen to what you say, to think carefully about what it means and how you are pointing us in these words, even in this very strange story, how you're pointing us to both the judgment and redemption that are in Christ. So, Lord, send your Spirit that we would understand, that we would hear. If any ears in here are closed because of a hard heart, Lord, please open them. If there's stubbornness, if there's willfulness and rebellion, if there's coldness of heart, spiritually lethargic, attitudes, if there's sorrow and brokenness, and Lord, all of these things, I'm sure, are here 
then Lord, please come by your spirit and minister. Take this word and apply it to each person as, as they have need. Make us teachable, Lord. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is, this is quite, a, quite a text, isn't it? Uh, I'm surprised that more of you didn't laugh out loud while we were reading. It's a really funny story, really strange story, very important, very serious story. The text that we're looking at today is different than the ones we've looked at in the weeks previously. You know, up to this point, we've been looking very directly at the life of Israel, at what they say, what they do, how they fail, how they sin, how God responds. And this week, it's like you're in the same movie, but the camera cuts to a different screen, a different scene. And you see something that's going on that, you know, the protagonist doesn't know about, but you know about it as the viewer. And that's what happens in this passage here because we're not looking directly at Israel in this passage. It doesn't talk about anything they say, anything they do. It doesn't look directly at them. It looks instead at some things that God is doing in their behalf behind the scenes and they have no idea. They don't know this is happening. But God behind the scenes is faithfully working for his people, faithfully providing for them. That's a very powerful picture if you begin to think about it. Because even though, you know, they're they're on the plains of Moab right now. That may or may not mean much to you. But they've come now out of the wilderness into a more fertile place. And they're looking right across the Jordan River at the promised land. But they've come through all this wilderness and they've been grumbling and they've been doubting God. And certainly those doubts still linger. But all the while, what's God's posture towards them? He's still embracing them. He's still holding them. He's still caring for them, even in ways that they can't perceive or see yet. It really brings us to thinking about the doctrine of the providence of God. Heidelberg Catechism, one of the great teaching tools that was written uh, back in the, the 1500s, gives this beautiful, beautiful description of God's providence. Let me ask you to listen to this. Providence is the almighty and ever present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures. So rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. It's a beautiful description of the providence of God. That there is nothing in your life so small that God does not care about it, that there's nothing so great in your life, there's no concern so great, but that God is not sovereignly ruling over it, controlling it, directing it toward his ends, that his power is limitless and boundless. His love is limitless and boundless, that he rules heaven and he rules earth in such a way That whatever happens, whatever set of circumstances, whatever befalls you, whether prosperity or poverty, sickness, health, life, death, whatever the circumstances, nothing happens randomly. Nothing happens haphazardly. And nothing, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus, nothing happens in your life except God is using it to move you toward the final destination of being like Christ and being with Him in glory. Absolutely nothing can interfere with that. 
that God, our Father, is always wisely and powerfully preserving us and ruling over us and defending us and guiding us and protecting us and saving us and loving us, always. And that's what we see here in Numbers chapter 22. It's just this great truth that I know you forget this. If you're a Christian and you believe this, you forget this. You live as if these things are kind of true. Or you live as if they're true conceptually, but in the way that you actually think about your life and the way that you actually live and respond to things, you and I, we forget that this is true. We live as if God is not sovereignly controlling and lovingly controlling all things for his people. But that's in fact the truth. God is always directing the course of world history for his glory and for the good of his people, for your good if you belong to Jesus Christ. That's a phenomenal truth, tremendous. And that's the thing I want you to see and to believe because we see it here in Numbers 22. Now let's just ask, why this story in the Bible? Why has God, uh, in his infinite wisdom, given us three chapters in the Bible about this pagan wizard and a talking donkey? Why? Books, things that are in the Bible are not there accidentally. They're there because God has placed them there for us. So why has he placed this here for us? It's for one reason. To show his people that despite your weakness, despite your fear, despite your failure, behind the scenes is a faithful, loving, redeeming, covenant-keeping God. Without fail. That's why this is here. Now let's... Let's look at it in these two ways, because I think if that's the point, the story really breaks down in two scenes. And the first scene is this interaction between Balaam and these messengers that come. And then the second scene is Balaam and this whole business with the donkey and the angel of the Lord. So let's, let's look first at Balaam and these messengers. Now, the Israelites weren't, they'd been frightened, right? They'd been, they'd been terrified, but they weren't the only ones who were frightened, we read in the very beginning of this chapter that the king of Moab was frightened. He's scared of them. Remember, they've grown in number. They're about a million strong, and they've just won two very important military battles, and now the king's frightened. He's, he's terrified. You notice what they say. They're going to lick up our property like an ox licks up the grass. They're going to do us in. They're coming for us. They'd heard of what the Lord had done bringing them out of Egypt. They'd seen what the Lord had done in defeating these other kings and their armies, and now they, they were the next group of people in between the Israelites and the Promised Land. So they were afraid. And so the Moabites and the Midianites, these two nations, they conspire together uh, through this king, Balak, and they come up with a plan. And what's the plan? Well, let's call this apparently internationally known seer, this wizard, this pagan prophet or, or diviner. Let's call him. Let's contract with him, and if we can get him to curse the Israelite people, then maybe we'll, we'll have a chance. We'll have a fighting chance to defeat them. So that's what they do. So, so Balak sends his elders, right? He sends them on a recruiting trip to Balaam's house, and they come with money in hand. The king promises to bless you, to honor you, and they deliver this message from the king that we read. Come, curse the people for me. Because they're too great, and I can't beat them myself. 
And how does Balaam respond? Balaam says, okay, well, he invites the messengers to spend the night with him so he can seek a message from God. Okay, Balaam knows enough to know that these are the Israelites and he knows that their God by reputation is the Lord God, Yahweh. So he goes and seeks a message from the Lord. And what does God say to him? You see it in verse 12. God's very clear. Two things. Don't go with them. Don't curse them because they're blessed. Pretty straightforward answer. Don't go with them and you shall not curse them because they're blessed. They're my people. They're under my blessing. Now, what should Balaam have done at this point? And this is where the story gets a little interesting and if you're not careful, it can get a little confusing. What should Balaam have done at this point? He should have done two things. He should have said two things. Number one, I can't go with you. Number two, and even if I did, these people cannot be cursed. The Lord said definitively they can't be cursed because they're blessed and he's blessed them and there's no one that can do anything about that. That's what Balaam should have said. But Balaam didn't say that. Balaam's sort of like, uh, you know, if you're a child and your parents tell you you can't go do something and they give you a really good reason for it, but then you communicate it back to your friend and you say, my parents won't let me go. That's what Balaam does. The Lord won't let me go. He doesn't give them the whole truth. And so, of course, they assume, rightly, uh, or they assume, understandably, that Balaam, Balaam is just trying to negotiate trying to sweeten the deal a little bit. So they go back to the king. Balaam won't come with us. The king sends back another delegation of messengers, more important people with more money in their pockets. Bring him back here. So when the second wave of recruiters go to see Balaam, it's very interesting to see his response. And I wonder if you noticed it. You can look at it again. Uh, If you look over uh, beginning with verse 18. He says two things, and the first one sounds very spiritual. sounds very pious and prophet-like. Not P-R-O-F-I-T, but the other one. He says, Though Balak were to give me his whole house full of gold and silver, I could not say more or less than what the Lord has commanded me. Oh, that sounds really good. It sounds very spiritual. Sounds, he even refers to Yahweh as his God. But you notice what he says next? So, you too, please stay here tonight that I might know what more the Lord might say to me. Now, think about that. If he really meant what he said about doing nothing more or less than what the Lord had commanded him, why does he invite him to stay? Why does he seek more information from the Lord? What part of you shall not go with them does he not understand? Right? What Balaam is doing... He could have said, look, I can come with you if you want. But it really doesn't matter what I say because they can't be cursed. I can't do what you're asking me to do. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. You see what he's doing? He's keeping his options open. He's working. He's trying to play between both God and the king and his messengers. Now, here's what's helpful. Who is this guy, Balaam? The Bible actually says quite a bit about him. He comes up in this story in Numbers. We read about his death in chapter 31. He's mentioned in Deuteronomy. And he comes up three places in the New Testament. And those three places in the New Testament tell us three interesting things about Balaam, important things. One, 2 Peter 2 tells us he was a false prophet. In Jude, we read that he was greedy for money. 
And in Revelation chapter 2, in one of the letters to the churches, we read that at some point in his, act, in his interaction with Balak the king, you know what Balaam did? Perhaps he realized that he was not able to curse them. But he advised Balak. He said, you know what, if you want to see their downfall, here's what you do. Befriend them. Befriend the Israelites. Entice them into worshiping your gods. And when they do, their God will be angry with them. And they'll become weak and you might have a chance. That's what Balaam did. And that's what happened to Israel. We'll read about that later in Numbers. This is who Balaam was. He's not a good guy. He's not a true prophet of the Lord. But I think Balaam is here to show us how God's loving, faithful purposes for you as his people just can't be thwarted. Do you realize that? You look at your life and so often it looks like things are creeping in and they're going to threaten the purposes of God. Somewhere in here you don't believe that. But somewhere in the course of your life that's kind of what begins to come out. And Balaam is here as a demonstration that there's no one, there's nothing that can thwart God's purposes. And you see that in Deuteronomy 23. There's this wonderful picture. They're in the same location a little later on. And Moses is preaching his farewell sermon to Israel right before they go into the promised land, and he dies. And here's what he says. Remember, they don't know about this business with Balaam. They weren't around to see that unfolding, but Moses tells them the story. He says, your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he turned, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Moses pulls back the curtain just for a moment so that God's people could see that when they had no idea what he was doing, when they weren't perhaps even thinking about God, he was plotting and conspiring and accomplishing for their good. Friends, you have no idea the providence of God at work in your life. And you begin to think about that, that behind the scenes... If God is your God through Jesus, then he is always behind the scenes working for your good. That's a great picture of the providence of God. Now let me ask you this. So so you have the people of God and you have this enemy king and you have Balaam, this false prophet. And you you have God's people, you have curses, you have blessings. I wonder where this kind of pulls you to. What do you, where do you remember in the Bible maybe reading about God's people and curses and blessings and God's faithful promise to bless his people? It really draws us back to Genesis chapter 12 where God first meets with Abraham and enters into a covenant with him and promises. You remember the, the content of those promises? I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land to dwell in and through you I'll bless the nations of the earth. I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse, and I will make your name great. You begin to see it this way. You begin to see that this clash that's going on in Numbers 22 is really a much bigger picture. It's a much bigger struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The two two kingdoms, if you will, that were prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what's going on here in Numbers 22 is this clash between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And it's the clash that we still live in today. 
And it's this war that will finally be resolved, which we see in the last book of the Bible, when Jesus comes in his glory to wipe out sin and wickedness and death and to finally perfectly establish his kingdom. But even though this war is ongoing, what we're seeing here in Numbers 22 is that God's gracious, loving, faithful plan for his people is fixed. It's constant. It's not going anywhere. God's saying to his people, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your uncertainty, in the midst of the threats of your enemies, take heart, take courage. I've pledged myself to you. I'm guiding you. I'm defending you. I'm determined to bless you. And no enemy, no false prophet, no sin, no doubt, no failure, nothing is going to stop me from accomplishing my purposes in your life. Now, think about the various things that open the floodgates for fear and doubt and worry and unbelief in your own life. What is it for you? We've talked about this. There's a sense in which we still live in this wilderness experience, don't we, as Christians? We've already entered into Christ and all the benefits of salvation, but we're not yet to the full glory of the kingdom of God. We're still moving as pilgrims toward that end. Where, where, where are you vulnerable? What are the things that come in and open those floodgates for you? Sickness, death, loneliness, financial problems, deep problems in relationships with others. Where, where is it for you? What's going on in those situations that cause you to fear? And isn't, isn't it this, that as you look at those circumstantial realities, your conviction that God is both able and willing to bless and care for you begins to get weakened? You begin to ask questions of that. Is God really present with me? Is he really working all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? We begin to slide into doubt and into fear and into anger or panic or worry or whatever it might be. But this morning, I want you to take to heart as you can think about where those struggles are with you and identify them before the Lord. I want you to take to heart what he's saying here. And believe this same pledge that he was giving to Israel, that to you who are believers in Christ, God will certainly bless you. Now, you understand blessing. God blessing you doesn't mean that you get, he does what you want him to do all the time, right? It doesn't mean that he always does what you think he ought to do. But it means that he has a perfect, wise, loving, gracious plan that he will definitely work out in your life. And that nothing will deter him from that. He'll never let you go. And in fact, because you're in union with Jesus Christ, you've already entered into that. You remember what Jesus says about those who belong to him, they're in his hand. And not one will fall away from his hand. And that you're also in the Father's hand and no one can take you from the Father's hand. So Balaam and the messengers. God is beginning to demonstrate his faithful love for his people. Then we move into this second scene with Balaam and the donkey. And the story transitions here. Now, to this point, Balak has been sending messengers. Now, God has a messenger to send. Balaam's been, or Balak has been sending uh, princes and dignitaries with their checkbooks. But God now sends the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. Balak had been sending his messengers to recruit Balaam. God has a messenger to send to Balaam to judge Balaam. 
And it's this angel of the Lord that you see in verse 32. And he says, Behold, to Balaam, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse or reckless before me. So God appears in the person of this angel of the Lord, this divine warrior, this Christ figure who comes in judgment on Balaam. But you know what's interesting? is Balaam, who's this great wizard. He's this really sharp seer, and he doesn't see any of it. In fact, if you look carefully through the text, there's this verb that keeps coming up. Saw, he saw, he saw. She's actually, she saw, she saw, she saw. Because Balaam sees nothing, the donkey sees it. It's this proverbially stupid, dense animal that sees the angel of the Lord with sword in hand come in judgment. And you recognize the story as we, as we go along. That first, the angel of the Lord appears with the sword in hand and the donkey sees the angel and turns aside into the field. I don't want to cross the angel of the Lord. This looks dangerous. And Balaam in anger slaps the donkey, hits it back into the road. And the angel of the Lord goes a bit further where the road's a bit more narrow and there are rock walls on each side. And the, angel, uh, the, the donkey again sees the angel of the Lord. There's no way she can go out into the field. So she just gets as close to the edge of the wall as she can to try to avoid this threatening figure. And she presses Balaam's foot up against the rock wall in the process. Makes him mad. Strikes her again. Get back in the road. And then the third time, the angel goes up even further to a place that's so narrow where there's no place to turn either to the right or to the left. The donkey sees the angel. Balaam still doesn't see. And what does the donkey do? Just collapses, falls down under Balaam. And at this point, Balaam is furious because, as he says to his donkey, you've made me look like a fool. Okay, as if talking back to your donkey doesn't seal that deal. You've made me look like a fool. Now, if you read back in verses 18 and 19 and 20, Balaam has a very interesting interaction with the Lord. And he, the Lord tells him, okay, go. But only say what I've, sent, what I've told you to say. And then we read that Balaam goes. And then what do we read in verse 22? God was angry with him for going. And that could be confusing. But if you understand what Balaam is doing here, Balaam is not submitting to the Lord, is he? Balaam is trying to use the Lord for his own purposes. And God, in letting him go, is sending him out in some measure to taste kind of the fruit of his rebellion a little bit. And he meets Balaam, as he has planned to, on that road to judge him. Balaam's a servant of Balaam. But the Lord has plans to meet him there, which he does. And then how does Balaam respond? Finally, we read in verse 31, then the Lord did what? He opened Balaam's eyes. And Balaam saw and Balaam realized to some degree that he was wrong. And he confesses that to the Lord. And he, and he's, and he offers to go back. But the Lord says, no, you go and you speak what I've given you to speak. So Balaam finally arrives at his destination. He arrives. King Balak wants to know, what took you so long? Didn't I call for you? And Balaam says, well, I'm here now. And then what we didn't read is very interesting. 
Because four consecutive times, as the king tries to get Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel, you know what comes out of his mouth? Four consecutive blessings on Israel. God constrains Balaam. God has used first this speechless donkey to rebuke the false prophet. And now he uses this false prophet to speak true words of blessing about his people. Now let me give you a flavor for what Balaam says. In the first oracle, here's part of what he says. Now remember, Balak is eagerly waiting. Oh, I can't wait to hear these curses. This is going to do it, right? First oracle out of Balaam's mouth. mouth. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Well, Balak is very angry at this point. What are you doing? I said curse, not bless. Try it again. So they do it over a second time. And here's what part of what comes out of Balaam's mouth. The second oracle. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. Not, not really a curse. And now Balak is furious. And he says, you know what? Forget it. Don't curse them. Don't bless them. Just leave. Just go. And Balaam offers a third oracle. God speaks through him a third time and says, as he looks down on the, the, the assembly, the tents of Israel scattered in the plains of Moab, he looks out and here's what he says from the Lord. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Your encampments, O Israel, blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And then on his way out, Balak says, you know what, I'm not even going to pay you. Just get out of here. Balaam says, I'm leaving, but there's one more thing I need to say. And here's what part of it is. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. See the marvel of what God's doing? God puts into the mouth of this self-serving, greedy, false prophet these prophetic words about Jesus Christ. And says, these people that you're trying to curse, out from them will come a reigning, everlasting king who will bring light, who will bring judgment, who will bring salvation. That's not what either Balaam or Balak were expecting. But you see, God will have his way with his people. Are you getting the message? That God's determined to bless his people? That his blessing doesn't always take the shape you think it will take? But he's always working things out for his glory and for your good as his people? There are dangers in our lives that some of us are never aware of because the Lord turns them away before we're ever aware of them. You ever think about that? And then there are those things that come into your life and they're like thunderclouds forming on the horizon. You've got plenty of time to start worrying early. And you convince yourself that it's going to go this way and it's going to be bad and and there's nothing that can change it. And there's no hope. And you begin to slide into that way of thinking. And our hearts begin to fear. And someone or something seems poised 
to finally ruin everything. We're so easily afraid. There's a great hymn. I've quoted part of it. There's part of it on the front of your worship guide. The title of the hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Some of you may know it. But two of the verses say, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. You think what's in them is storm, but what's in them in the end is blessing. His purposes, God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. If the Lord has decreed our blessing, then nothing and no one can turn our blessing into a curse. Why can this be so? How can you know this is true? Because God has sent his final messenger. Not this angel of the Lord with the sword in his hand, but the incarnate Lord himself, Jesus Christ. And though one day he will come with sword drawn in judgment, until that day he comes, what? With gospel blessings in his hand for those who will take him, for those who will bow before him and believe in him. John's gospel tells us God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. How can we know for sure? How can you know for sure? How can you remind yourself and one another when you forget that God's purpose for you as his people is not to curse you, but to bless you, to provide for you, to care for you, to love you, to save you? How can you know? The answer is that if you belong to Christ, he's taken the curse for you. The angel's sword, which is a sword of judgment, has been plunged into his heart rather than into yours. Our way was perverse before the Lord, as was Balaam's. But Christ died in our place. Our sins placed us under God's wrath, His judgment, His curse. But in Christ we receive the blessing that God has promised to the descendants of Abraham. The cross then, the cross is the unshakable guarantee of God's purpose to bless you as His people. Your future as believers in Christ is settled and certain because your high priest sits at God's right hand to intercede for you. We read it from Romans 8. It's crazy. It's spiritually crazy to think that the God who would give his own son freely would then be unfaithful in the future. It's true to think God has not even spared his own son. Doesn't he care about me? Does he care about my life? Does he care about my marriage? Does he care for my children? Does he care for the things that trouble me? The cross is the unshakable guarantee that he does. The empty tomb is the unshakable guarantee that he is powerfully at work in you and for you. And so, brothers and sisters... This great behind-the-scenes look at God's faithfulness. Since God has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
Since he's given us an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfading, that's stored up in heaven for us until the day we, together with all the saints, enter into it in the presence of Jesus Christ, let us not lose heart. Let's not lose courage. But let us praise him and trust him and rejoice in his promises to care for us, rejoice in the favor of God, and rest in his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your unshakable purposes to your people. We thank you for your strong providence in our lives. And we thank you that you have sent into this world not an angel with sword drawn in judgment to confront us, but the incarnate Lord Jesus himself bearing judgment for us and extending life to us. Lord, keep us from foolishness. Keep us from unbelief. Help us to live by faith and not by sight. And we pray that you would use your word and that you would use the table that we're coming to now to that end. Hold up in front of us yet again the glorious cross of Christ, the empty tomb, and remind us that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in us by his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.